3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, listeners. You are listening to the Thursday Breakfast Show on 3CR 855am. Hey, Carly, how's it going? Hey, Priya. It's going great. Um, 10th of September. We are tunneling towards the end of the year. Um, yeah, and I'm enjoying the weather this week. Oh my goodness. The yes. sun has been incredible. I got uh, so much laundry done. Um, I wore shorts for five minutes. <laughs> it was incredible. Oh. Um, and what's also incredible is our show today. So um, we are going back into the long-form interviews um, for today. So we've got two fantastic interviews. Um, the first interview, I am talking. It's not really an interview. It's more of a conversation with Annalise Arthur, who is a behaviour change facilitator and family violence practitioner. And she's passionate about transformative justice. And Iris Lee also um, joins us in the conversation. And she's a writer and presenter on 3CR's Women on the Line and Queering the Air. And we speak about prison industrial complex abolition in so-called Australia and how to um, harness newfound ACAB energy that's buzzing at the moment and also the impacts of the internet on abolitionist theory and practice. We also have an interview that I did with uh, Bridget Chappelle, who joined me to speak about the upcoming LP release of Undertow, which is their debut full-length album. Bridget's a sound artist and activist currently based in Mildura, which is on Lachi Lachi and Nyeri country. And Undertow is going to be released on the 30th of September on Heavy Machinery Records. But we're going to be playing track four, Elizabeth Street, for you today after the interview. And now to Kate Kelly with the headlines. Good morning. I'm Kate Kelly and here are the top stories on 3CR this Thursday. Rates would double for gaming venues and halve for arts and hospitality outlets under a Greens policy for next month's Melbourne City Council. The Greens will launch the campaign this week and it will, will centre on a wealth tax on gambling venues, doubling their rates for five years while halving rates for bars, restaurants, clubs, galleries, theatres and other venues struggling to survive the coronavirus lockdown in the CBD. Gaming venues in the city of Melbourne, including Crown Casino, would end up paying four times the rates of arts and hospitality venues under the Fair Rates for Everyone policy. The plan would require changing the council rating system to allow for more differentials than the current scheme, which considers residential and non-residential land. Under the existing system, the highest rate payer can pay only double the rate of the lowest. The extra income from gaming venues would also allow for an effective rate freeze on residential and all other non-residential properties in the first year of the scheme, according to the plan. 
and federally Australia's failures towards First Nations people have come have become entrenched through decades of inaction. Victoria's first Aboriginal senator has declared why vowing to right these wrongs. So Lydia Thorpe, who attended her first Greens Party room meeting on Wednesday and was named as its First Nations and Justice spokesperson, said Australia's failures were not just the result of a few bad policy decisions. If we're to right these wrongs, we need to fix the system, said Thorpe, who has ended the Senate after the retirement of former Greens leader Richard Di Natale. Thorpe struck a hopeful note saying that the Black Lives Matter movement had empowered communities around the world to demand justice for First Nations people and people of colour. Part of Senator Thorpe's priorities in the portfolio will be the treaty to right the wrongs of this nation's past and move forward together, an end to deaths in custody and mass incarceration of First Nations people by investing in communities, not prisons, and raising the age of criminal responsibility to stop any Australian child as young as 10 being jailed. Lydia will be sworn into federal parliament during the October sitting, pandemic allowing, and will give her first speech in the following weeks. And back to local news where a Noongar man on his way to work in Melbourne has been taken to hospital with injuries to his arm after being crash-tackled from his bicycle by Victoria Police. The 32-year-old Noongar man has alleged he was racially profiled and assaulted by up to 15 members of Victorian Police while on his way to work in Melbourne on Wednesday morning. Corey Penny claimed he was riding his bicycle to work when he was verbally abused by the police officers and forcibly tackled him from his bike in an incident that left him injured and his property damaged. So speaking to NITV News, Mr Penny said he believed the incident was a racist attack. And he said, they think they can get away with doing anything to us black fellas. If I was a white person in a suit, I would have been riding past. Mr. Penny was taken by ambulance from the scene to the hospital for injuries sustained to his arm. He said he was he has received no apology from Vic, from Victoria Police. The Australian Workers Union has has shown its support and will lodge a complaint with Victoria's Minister for Police condemning the incident and demanding the officers involved are held accountable. And that's it for Thursday's headlines. You're listening to 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast, 8.55am. And today I'm joined by my wonderful friends, Annalise Arfat and Iris Lee. Annalise Arfat is a community organiser, mother of two, behaviour change facilitator and family violence practitioner who is passionate about transformative justice. Annalise loves to think, reflect, and practice accountability, prison abolition, and absolutely loves Malifal. Iris is a writer. She has previously worked in hospitality and cleaning. She's a white settler, queer and trans, and she is a regular host and producer of 3CR's Queering the Air and Women on the Line. Her breadth of knowledge continues to astound me, and I really miss seeing Iris in person because she's absolutely one of the best vegan bakers that I know. Thank you so much, Annalise and Iris, for joining us on 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast. Thanks, Carly. Yeah, thanks, thanks Carly. Iris. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so today we're going to be talking about Prison Industrial Complex Abolition, Newfound ACAB Energy, and also how the internet has impacted our abolition movements. And so we're all going to ask a question today because we wanted to, to be a bit more conversational. So I'm going to go first. <laughs> and I really want to know um, what prison abolition means to both of you. And 
Personally, um, I came to understand prison abolition theory through campaigning against resource extraction companies. So I'm really good at understanding power mapping and breaking down the institutional pillars of support, um, setting winnable goals and really trying to target people who have power to give us what we want or what a campaign wants. Um, but through meeting both of you, um, I've just seen that prison abolition is just way more than community building campaigns. It's about solidarity through writing letters to people in prison. It's about mutual aid and deep networks of solidarity um, that transform into community education that challenge people's beliefs and actions to challenge violence. And so I'm really interested in this question um, because I want to know in what areas of the prison industrial complex you're both aiming to tackle in your lives. Mm. Yeah, such a huge question, hey. Um, what does abolition mean to me and what do I want to focus on in my life? Because I guess, yeah, I, I want to start off by saying that, yeah, I'm not someone, someone that's like has decades of experience in, in this sort of politics or work and I'm very much, um, yeah, very much learning a lot and still relatively new to everything. So that's the first thing I'd say. And yeah, it, it's like as a lot of the people that's come up, come up with the, come up with the concept, a lot of women of color and black feminists have pointed out it's, sort of a horizon I see it rather than rather than a blueprint and in terms of what it means in my life it means really thinking about the logics of punishment and individual individualism that means that we yeah we don't have the skills in terms of how I've been raised in this society in terms of dealing with um violence in communities it's about the police resorting to the police who then are a big source of state violence. And, and in terms of abolition, it's about not just the police, but it is about policing, which includes social work being abolished in terms of people having access to all their needs and really a revolutionary transformative change that's grounded in Indigenous sovereignty and dismantling of capitalism and hierarchical hierarchical oppression such as ableism, trans misogyny, white supremacy and queer phobia. And yeah, everything you mentioned, Carly, about the day-to-day -day, um, small things, yeah, are really important in terms of um, yeah, relationships with people inside because we know that they're not necessarily like in terms of letter writing and stuff because in, in, in maintaining those relationships because prisons really break communities and isolate people, people inside have been isolated from, for not six months more during the pandemic with no visits. And yeah, people like Tabitha Lean have really pointed out how formerly incarcerated and incarcerated people's voices aren't really heard in terms of abolition. So that's something I have to ask myself, how do I, yeah, what does that mean to me and how do I center those voices? Thank you for that, Iris. Annalise? Hmm, I'm not sure. Um, I feel like Iris just gave like such a wonderful, um, I guess, 
framework or um, definition of abolition. Um, and I think, yeah, the only things I would add to that, I guess, is um, like what are the ways that we can kind of dismantle kind of like surveillance culture, like in ourselves, like policing culture in ourselves. Um, you know, I think for people, including myself, who've been, who live in a world where I've only known prisons, policing, um, you know, and further from that, like IRS, you mentioned social work. So the ways that of like child protection, these kind of institutions, um, I've only ever known those things. So like undoing, um, undoing the, the need for those in my head, um, and undoing my community's reliance on those um, institutions. And we know, you know, that those institutions don't, don't often off, offer people increased safety or um, increased justice. Um, we saw that by the outcome of um, what happened recently with Tanya Day um, and the police who were not prosecuted. So like, yeah, there's these kind of systems that seem so much a part of our lives, but kind of aren't giving us what we, um, what we're seeking from them. So it's like, we're seeking safety and seeking justice, but they're not delivering that. So why do we use them so, so intensely and so immensely in our lives? Um, so like abolition to me is about like undoing it in myself and in my communities, um, like less reliance on those things. And then more of my kind of thinking, Iris, you mentioned punishment. So like undoing, um, resorting to kind of the ideas of like punishment for people that have enacted harm um, and actually thinking about, you know, when people enact harm, what healing and accountability looks like instead. Um, and yeah, of course, abolition for me is like not just one thing. I think like there's, it's not like an answer or something. It's like something that's an analysis of like our current systems like the of the criminal legal system um and then it's also like a way to live so like um we can like do a practice of an accountability in our daily lives um and be accountable as for me accountable as, as a settler accountable as a cis woman um accountable as a parent as a friend um, as a partner so like I can practice abolition, but then also abolition is like a way to see the things going on in the world as well. And yeah, mm. just um, one more thing on that is I, I just also want to say that I have not been incarcerated. And so I, my work in this is definitely in solidarity. Um, and that's how I've stepped into this, um, into working alongside people who are incarcerated. Mm. Thank you so much, um, both Iris and Annalise, for sharing, um, yeah, in what ways that you're tackling the prison industrial complex in your lives because I do see it as how both of you have talked about that, one, it's about <clears throat> the ways that you embody abolition as a practice on a daily basis and that's why um, I created the and produced the um, uh, liberation loops for 3CR Thursday morning breakfast and I was having conversations with people about 
some like little tactics and tools that we can all use in our lives, such as um, learning how to safety plan um, for people who are experiencing family and domestic violence and also um, PODMAP so that we ourselves can build those networks of safety um, and know who we can reach out to and tell those people that they're the people that we want to reach out to when we have caused harm or um, when we have been harmed. And that I also, yeah, like abolition is also about changing the material conditions under which we have turned to prisons, which is what, um, yeah, Ruthie Gilmore Wilson says, how now prisons are a catch-all solution to social problems. So the question that I always ask myself now is, am I materially making a difference to somebody's life? And I think that that's where I would like, Annalise, for you to ask um, your question to both Iris and I. Mm. My question was about, you know, I, I guess I've been doing specifically like prisoner solidarity stuff um, since I was like 17 and, you know, I'm in my mid-30s now. So, I, like, you're kind of seeing the kind of energy around, like, prison abolition, um, prisoner solidarity stuff, anti-policing stuff over this period of time. I feel like we can clearly see there's a lot of energy around it. You called it ACAB energy, Carly. Um, <laughs> and so, like, whilst I'm, like, so, like, excited about this, I'm also, like, really, um, I guess, cautious or, or weary about it. And so my question for the both of you was like, what is needed? What's like necessary for like kind of all of us to be doing in order for this to be like sustained for people that people actually want to like live in this ACAB <laughs> energy for, for their whole lives. Like, you know, and my politics around that is often people that are marginalised and vulnerable don't get a choice, right? Like they are living in the struggle because their lives are the ones that are being um, oppressed. So like mm -hmm. for those that are kind of new to this, like, yeah, what do we need to do in these kind of gr friendship groups and movements and scenes so that people actually, so this is sustained? Yeah, such a good question. This is such an interesting moment. And it's, yeah, it's a different context here in so-called Australia than in on Turtle Island in the US, where we're seeing like, where we're seeing an ongoing like rebellion that's quite um, significant in terms of the last few decades of social movements in terms of rebellion against anti-black violence, led by a bunch of amazing, I don't know, amazing people. In terms of Australia, there's just, there's, there's really significant organising against black deaths in custody by a lot of First Nations groups. But I think in terms of uh, white settler solidarity in particular, I think it's like lacking an ongoing way. And that's like a challenge for me in terms of how to build that even in like, pretty simple us around solidarity in terms of the Tanya Day campaign and like the push to decriminalize public drunkenness. It was like, there wasn't really enough support there and the Victorian government wasn't committed to decriminalizing it, but it didn't really translate 
um, to act, that actually happening, and that still hasn't happened yet because they didn't feel enough heat on it. Um, so, yeah, that's a concern, but that was before the latest sort of um, rising up ACAB politics. And, yeah, and I also have, yeah, I have concerns about how it's understood in terms of, you know, you see in terms of like mental health stuff, you see people talking about um, state violence on one hand and then recommending um, hotlines that are like police adjacent in terms of their policies on the other hand. Mm. So, mm. Yeah, I'd like to see some more that sort of thing being people like asking more questions of things and it'll take, and potentially it's going to take more time than in other places where there's, um, much more movement behind like um, the social movements against anti-black violence maybe than here. Yeah. But I do see small openings and I see more people talking about policing, but yeah, in terms of even reformist organizations like a lot an LGBTI lobby group asking questions on policing, which I haven't done for many years in terms of that area has been that very white homonormative and compliant in terms of questions around policing and Daniel Andrews pinkwashing. And we're seeing a little bit of that, but I worry it's going in a neuroformist direction unless more people involved in that are asking the bigger questions. It's interesting to Iris to think about how entangled even those organisations are with policing, child protection, prison systems. Yeah, for sure. So entangled and, yeah, I don't see it's going to come from the top of those organisations. It's going to come from um, people experiencing the brunt in terms of the service sector and the contradictions in terms of, um, yeah, like the ongoing violence around police involvement in terms of intimate partner violence. And, but that's probably an area that one of you could speak more than me. Yeah, that's a huge issue. <laughs> um, and it's one that oh, I think that's why it's so important to practice abolition every day. Um, and I know that, um, you know, Michelle Foucault says this in Discipline and Punish, how he talks about how the prison system, um, it's not just the judge that makes a judgment. Um, and so if I want to bring that forward to right now, when I'm working with people in prison, um, yes, they're not just going before a judge when it comes to their trial, their sentence. It's also their support workers who are writing letters to, uh, you know, to the judge. It is um, nurses and doctors that are also providing reports. It's the Department of Child Safety also providing reports um, and yeah, I think that, you know, we all do really need to um, think about all of those ways in which um, we're all passing judgment on people, like in our daily lives. 
Um, what do you think, yeah. Carly, in terms of the sustaining the energy of this yeah. moment in time? I think, like Ira said, we do have like a really strong like Black Deaths in Custody movement here. Um, and I think that's growing and growing as well. Um, but like, I don't think we have an abolition movement here or if we do, it's these kind of, well, yeah, I, I small, it's really tiny. So like, how do we like grow a movement and then sustain it, I guess. Yeah. Very fragmented. And it's like, yeah, fragmented. How does, no, I won't use that metaphor about making abolition go viral in Australia, but <laughs> how do we do it? Well, okay. I remember reading this art because, so mutual aid is one term that since COVID-19 pandemic um, has really, you know, rocked the world. Um, I've just been seeing mutual aid being used like as a term. Um, not nece- I'm not necessarily sure if people are actually participating in mutual aid more or whether it's just a term that the media has picked up on and also that, um, you know, not-for-profits have picked up on and are using that term more as well. And I remember seeing this article um, by Vox and it said how to help people during the pandemic, one Google spreadsheet at a time. (laughs) That is so fucked and so real. Oh, my God. But that's so true, right? So I think when people initially come to doing like any kind of, yeah, organising work, like they like we live in a capitalist society and we just kind of want to be told what to do. And so, totally. and also it's hard work. Like doing this work is really time consuming. Um, and you're not necessarily always going to get it right. And it's really like a lot of the time hidden work, like invisible work. So lately. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. And it's interesting that mutual aid has gone as popularized more so than abolition in the pandemic, even though I think it's still a lot of it's pretty surface level engagement. And obviously already many oppressed communities already do mutual aid and have really high levels of interdependence and supporting each other. But that's interesting. And maybe it goes back to like how abolition is like a, it's, it's a scary topic in terms of how it's imagined, in terms of how ingrained punishment logic is in mm. the, the white settler penal, penal colony in Australia. Because um, I, I was thinking earlier today about C.J. Palmer's and how she she's a trans woman who was locked up because of alleged HIV transmission, a trans woman of colour and also a sex worker and... And the, all the, like, confluence, all the different factors meant people just, there wasn't really much support for the fundraising compared to other things because of about who's perceived as the legitimate incarcerated person to support versus the person that's not as respectable, no sorts of respectability politics. Yeah. And we see that all the time, right, even, like, and strongly in the US around... Um, having to denote people who have experienced police violence as though they are like angelic. Um, and whilst totally like people are um, 
uh, wonderfully complex, right? Maybe somebody like was like doing something that was shitty, but like we, it's like in our mindset, people, we have to frame somebody as good to be able to value them. And if they're in any way complex, if they're in any way a complex person that actually just sometimes does shit things and sometimes is a wonderful person, then, then we can't, we, in, inside of us, we can't support them. Um, and it's really problematic because it means so many people then like don't get the support that they need because they are re- complex individuals as we all are. Um, but in order for, it seems like in order for people to like, but to have like an understanding of someone that would like value that person enough to support them. They have to be framed as a very particular person, which is really fucked. Mm. No, that's absolutely true because um, I know an Aboriginal woman that died in this year. Um, and I said that she was murdered because it was the failure of the state as to the reason why she was in prison. And also the support services that were meant to support her immediately upon release from prison um, that didn't do their duty of care. And people would have seen her as a drug addict um, and as somebody who uh, died because of that and not because of state violence. You know, we kind of get asked in letter writing, right? Like, but what what if you're writing to this particular kind of person? Like, um, how do you know? And all of us are like, you don't know. <laughs> like, the whole premise is that, you know, people are dehumanised when they're incarcerated and so we're trying to humanise people. Um, and it's, yeah, it's an interesting logic, you know, when Iris, you were talking about our own kind of, prison and punishment logic of having to really undo that, like I think is hard work. Um, And I was going to say like for me about the sustaining thing, I think it has to like really matter to someone. So obviously for people experiencing the oppression, it matters to them because that's their experience in the world. For people not experiencing it, like I don't know, I really... I'm like, you have to find like what it is about. And I think there are connections for everyone, but like, um, and it's not about understanding someone's experience, right. But it's about like finding a connection where you go something about that oppression, like is, is important for me to be able to stand in solidarity with. Um, and that's cause I also, maybe it might be, that's cause I also stand here like it under this capitalist white supremacist, you know, homophobic, transphobic world. And I think that um, I want to live in something that's, you know, better. Um, Finding, yeah, finding those reasons so that you actually um, don't want to live in this (laughs) and actually want something different. I think people have to find it. So they stay, they stay in these movements. Yeah, that's such a thing that we need. And it's like even, yeah, for people with the politics, some of it can be quite academic. Yes. And and if that doesn't really translate to supporting the people most affected by the system, it's really far removed and it's not really abolitionist really, is it? Totally, Iris. So it's like finding, it's like finding something in, in you 
you know, like I don't know how to describe that, but it's like, yeah, it's not about studying something and, th- and critiquing it from the like and othering people in that way. It's actually like finding, like you said that word, Carly, like embodying abolition. Like I think people kind of need to come to that in order to like stay in it for their lives. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you meant you mentioned letter writing, and I think that that's a really great way for people to actually yeah just start building connections with people um who are incarcerated and start building connections with the family of people who are incarcerated start building connections with people who are targeted and racialized um because of policing like that's what police do they just target and racialize people and that's how like they criminalize people um, and that's how I see crime through that lens. It's not that people are criminals. It's that really? the police criminalize certain people. Um, and I think that that's what we need to start kind of growing. Um, so yeah, anybody that is like has an abolitionist like framework, we need to start thinking of ways that, that we can yeah, like allow people to come in to this work because coming from doing uh, campaign work against fossil fuel, like extractive resource companies, there's so many organisations that you can like join and volunteer mm-hmm. um, and that's not something that we really have in so-called Australia. Um, and so... It's not like the US where you can find your chapter of critical resistance um, and then start doing work easily. Um, We really have to think of, yeah, lots of different ways and groups and collectives. And I know that, you know, that's a lot of the work, Annalise, that you've been a part of with Undercurrent um, and, yeah, IRL InfoShop. Iris, did you want to ask your question? Um, yeah, sure. So yeah, I've been thinking a bit about the internet in terms of organizing, in terms of abolition politics and what it, what the internet can assist with and also what are some of its drawbacks. Who has thoughts on that? Well, um, when we were discussing this Previously, I said to Iris and Carly that perhaps they have to both answer this question because um, I'm like not of the internet generation. So I just have heaps of critiques of the internet. (laughs) Well, we can definitely critique later. Um, (laughs) I might start. Yeah, I really recommend for listeners to listen to an interview uh, where Kelly Hayes talks with Mariam Carver about um, digital storytelling and building power through digital organising because, I mean, it's always been important in um, building movements and also it's really important at the moment because we are in, you know, COVID-19 health pandemic and so it's really like one of the only ways at the moment that we can connect with each other and still do movement work. Um, And yeah, like digital organizing has actually always been part of organizing and, you know, digital organizing, um, 
I see a lot of in the US with like bailout funds. And so all of that organizing is really done online and like on online platforms. You know, um, in a context here in so-called Australia, um, there was the Free Her GoFundMe campaign. And so not only was that um, a place where people could, you know, donate money to, and then um, Sisters Inside was paying off um, particularly Aboriginal women's fines, who in prison for unpaid fines in WA. You know, that campaign was great because, yes, like people could directly give money so that people could pay their unpaid fines off in WA prisons, but it was also like pushing the WA government to see how much support there was so that they could change that law. And that law was changed. And so there was a lot of, I know, um, Noongar peoples from so-called Western Australia who were really pushing that on the ground. And then um, on top of that, you had this online campaign. And, you know, the combination of those things actually, like, won that campaign and it was fantastic. It's a really positive step in the right direction. Um, and I just want to acknowledge that Ms. Du, um, she died in custody um, because she was in there for unpaid fines. And so, yeah, there's just a real legacy um, again. Um, and just like enormous strength from Aboriginal peoples um, in this country to be yeah, advocating and pushing um, to stop black deaths in custody. Um, but, yeah, also, um, you know, as far as like organising tactics go, there's like emailing like local politicians and, I mean, that was what MPD 150 did in Minneapolis where they were really targeting their local politicians and, you know, one of the ways is just like inundating them with phone calls, inundating them with emails and making sure that they are talking about that at their local caucuses. And, I mean, MPD 150 had to target their local councillors because there was a particular charter that meant that they had to have a certain quota of police. Um, and so, yeah, I think that the internet is really wonderful and also, apart from... Um, all the ways that we can use it to organise together. Um, I think that, you know, now people are much more um, attuned to abolition theory because it's, like, way more accessible. And also, especially um, disability communities have been, like, organising this way forever. Mm -hmm. Iris, do you have yeah. any more thoughts on... The positives before we go to Annalise. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, I have some positives I'll have too. Both. I'll have both. Um, um, but yeah, the internet's yeah been formative in many ways because of yeah, particularly like trans communities are very isolated from each other growing up. So that's allowed like access to other people in a way that wouldn't have been possible before. But of course, you know, um transgender diverse people have found communities without the internet as well um so that's so the ability of the internet to foster different communities is a good one um but there are many drawbacks to the internet and carly has mentioned a lot of the positives in terms of campaigning and pressure points and how it allows for a range of tactics and can be an accessible medium for um for disabled people who might not be able to do what's like the organizing that's fetishized in terms of the on the, on the street stuff. Um, 
but the drawbacks around it is it kind of yeah sometimes in terms of the more like fine transformative justice work sometimes doesn't lend itself well to the internet in terms of how we go about conversations and, and nuance and like talking to each other, especially when you don't know the other person. Um, but also it can be really good in terms of spreading that content, as you said, the abolition content. And uh, another problem is that the internet's largely owned by giant corporations and they have their own agenda. And it's really good that to use it in a subversive way to challenge everything. But yeah, we're seeing like Facebook ban mm. anarchist pages mm. at the same time as extremist right-wing content. So that really points towards like what would building our own infrastructure mean? And in terms of surveillance, that's another downside of the internet in terms of it's all owned by these states, state, um, states and massive corporations. You know, I think the internet as like, and I'm, I, I find it funny to use the word the internet for some reason. So I'm like, what, what do we mean by that? But obviously it's like, yeah, online organizing is like, like has been used for a very really long time and in a diversity of tactics in abolition. Um, although what I have seen of as an increase is online organizing where people's politics starts and ends there. And I think that's my biggest critique is if your abolition politics is about um, filling out an online petition and that's all you do, then I do think <laughs> online organizing is bullshit. Um, I think if it's an entry point for people, like fucking amazing, like that is so wonderful. It's accessible. It's often free you can find like things that are, you know, safer in terms of like surveillance stuff. If, you know, people have, can have access to that, then that's really wonderful and amazing. But like Iris was saying, you know, I think, um, and like also, you know, when people talk about like um, disabled communities, trans communities, isolated communities in general, um, having the internet, I think, Yes, but also all of those communities have also been on the front lines. And I think we often, like, somehow take away the narrative of that, that they're often the people on the front mm. lines. Disabled mm. communities are often the people on the front line. Um, and so, you know, like, there's lots of different tactics um, and they're all really many of them, most of them are all really valuable. Like I think diversity is the value, um, different ways to like, um, yeah, different ways to organize suit different people suit different like ways you are in the world. Um, but what else are you doing? I guess, like how else are you like, like Iris said, what kind of conversations are you having in your communities, your friendships, your families about harm, um, about supporting people who've experienced violence, about undoing your own punishment logic, um, about meeting new people, you know, like I always think, you know, if you're white and all of your friendship group is white, I'm like, 
you know, don't go fetishizing people of color, but like maybe like branch out a bit, like get some other friends, you know, like how do we like actually like build networks of solidarity across some of those being online, some in person and like learn how to like speak and be with each other in like a generative way. Um, I have found it to, for people that grew up in like the kind of in the internet, I have found conversations around harm way actually harder with those communities um, because the language used is like not, I guess not something that um, I've like grown up in or something, you know? So like, I'm like quite confronted when I, um, when I'm doing, having harm conversations, accountability conversations with those communities. Mm. And also how corrections don't allow internet access <laughs> yeah. at all. It's like internet, internet isn't accessible to so many people. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, the surveillance stuff, you know, we've kind of talked about this in our, in our friendship, like with Carly and Iris, but like I am like super aware of like how fucking surveilled like anyone doing any online organizing is like and there will be consequences of that and there are consequences of that you know and I it does it does it scares me for sure particularly because that stuff is profiled right like it's going to be like you know, people at the margins that are the most profiled, Aboriginal people, people of colour, trans and gender diverse people, disabled people, like it's all the people at the margins that will be, that have the consequences of that. Absolutely. Um, is there anything, Annalise and Iris, that you would lastly like to share with listeners? Um, any initiatives that you're really excited about um, to do with prison industrial complex abolition? Mm. Yeah, I can't really talk about it that much, but yeah, there's more people talking about, yeah, supporting the amazing work that transgender diverse people on the inside of prisons are doing in terms of pushing for um, basic like, healthcare rights or basic, like, actually being let to be transferred to a women's prison and takes and pushing really hard against these really basic things that the system has just set up to inflict enormous violence on um, a lot of particularly trans women, particularly black and brown trans women in prison. Um, so that's really good that there's more conversations around supporting what's going on inside around pushing back against the prison obviously like join and follow and around black deaths in custody in Australia um, as like, you know, whether if that's just material stuff then fucking put your money there, <laughs> like pay the rent. Um, I think, yeah, doing and getting involved in your local mutual aid projects um, writing letters to people inside, joining your local letter writing group. Um, I think having conversations with your friends about what to do if someone causes harm in your community, in your friendship group, and what to do, like how to support someone who's experiencing violence um, and actually practising accountability. I, I would like people to be excited about doing that. Um, 
and yeah, working hard on actually if we've got all this ACAB energy, then, you know, if you're not calling the cops anymore, then <laughs> you've got to be like building your communities so that um, you don't need to. And so people feel supported and people feel safe or safer um, and that people who've caused harm are supported um, to, yeah, supported in their own accountability um, and in their own healing. Get excited about that. That would excite me. And like, you know, if you, if you, you're seeing like police violence, don't just walk away from it, Mm. you know, like do something about it, get your phone out and record it, get the police officer's name, um, get their station and put in a complaint, like, be a bystander that counts and that matters and that can actually shift something, especially if you are in a position of entitlement in this country where your voice will be listened to more than someone else's. Use use it. Mm. Don't just like, yeah, don't just look away from things. Mm. And don't make things worse (laughs) for someone (laughs) as well. (laughs) Mm. Yeah, just and like Holly's point on mutual aid projects is so like if people have spare money, just want to shout out to the First Nations. Yeah, over nineteen Vic yeah. mutual aid GoFundMe, and all organizations doing so much like work in a pandemic, like rise refugee mm. survivors next detainees. Yeah, um, and Scarlet Alliance. Yeah. In terms of the sex yeah. work stuff. And like, you know, sometimes I think people want to do more than giving money. Like ask your neighbours, like go around your neighbourhood and see if anyone's in need. Um, see if anyone needs their groceries collected or if they need a food box. Mm-hmm. Um, or medication. Know, get, yeah, get together with your group of friends and like organise and talk to people and see what's going on for them and if you can support them in any way, you know, redistribute the wealth. Mm, 100%. Um, And I think actually just to end on this note, um, something Annalise and Iris that you have definitely taught me is that we can only do this work collectively. So thank you um, so much for joining me here on 3CR Thursday morning breakfast to talk about what people can do with all of this newfound um, ACAB energy and also the ways in which internet um, organising around prison abolition on the internet has both its um, great attributes and um, also its very valuable critiques. Thank you, Carly, and thank you, Iris. Love the both of you. Thank you very much. Love you too. You're listening to the Thursday Breakfast Show on 3CR 855 AM. We now go to an interview with Bridget Chappelle, who joined me to speak about the upcoming release of Undertow, their debut full-length album. Bridget is a sound artist and activist currently based in Mildura on Lachi Lachi and Nuri Nuri country. Hey, Bridget. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me on this show. Before we start, could you let listeners know a bit about yourself and your work? Hey, uh, thanks for taking the time to speak to me. Um, 
Yeah, so I'm, a, as you said, sound artist and activist. I try to combine the two. Um, I'm a musician, uh, so I make dance music um, as hex tape, but then I also make um, experimental and classical music, usually under my own name. Um, I started and run the project Sound School, which has been running free workshops in NARM for the last three years, um, mainly aimed at making electronic music more accessible to, you know, the communities that um, should really be credited with creating these genres of dance music in the first place. And, you know, they are, and they're usually the kind of, not just the creators, but the people still at the helm of dance music. So people of color, queer people, people with disabilities, women and femmes, um, but the people who are not um, getting to kind of steer the ship of it, basically. Um, yeah, um, so I guess like my politics worm their way into everything that I do. <laughs> yeah, someone said to me recently that you only ever make one work in your life as an artist and you're just kind of um, reworking that one work all the time. Um, yeah, and definitely with Undertow, which is about water essentially and the politics of water, um, I've, yeah, found myself revisiting that a fair bit. <laughs> Hopefully none of it sounds like a broken record. No, I mean, I'm really excited to talk with you about this because I feel like thinking about the politics of water and the politics of space, um, especially in the context of like a city of Melbourne commissioned artwork is really interesting if we think about the sort of layered histories um, that this work engages with. So um, Undertow has its origins in a commission from the city of Melbourne to develop a data-informed public sound installation for the Federation Bells during Knowledge Week 2019. Um, you took listeners on a sound journey through the city's original waterscape. So could you tell us a bit about how you developed the installation and some of the history that underpins that journey? Yeah. Um... Yeah, as you say, it was for the city of Melbourne. I, they cold called me um, and said, would you uh, do this um, commission, which is great. Um, and basically they wanted to make a piece of music from data, um, which is kind of a growing trend in, in music um, to make data-informed work. Um, and so I went through their data platform, um, which was this, you know, huge collection of city of Melbourne data. And most of it was just punishingly dry uh, you know, in every sense of the word, uh, you know, how many people are getting a parking ticket right now? Um, and then I just happened upon, um, and, you know, cause I found my way into the environmental section, um, of the data. And a lot of that was just really unabashed greenwashing, you know, talking about the urban forest. It's like, well, yes, there are some trees still left in the CBD, but you know, <laughs> the vast majority are not there. Um, anyway, but I found just a couple of maps that really grabbed me. Um, two of them were from the 1800s, um, made by a settler, um, about, um, Melbourne's original waterways as he saw them um and, but it was kind of was superimposed onto contemporary google maps format so it was very easy to kind of see exactly where these waterways were so the original creeks and wetlands um 
that would have fed into or still do feed into um, the Yarra River. Um, and then there was also this contemporary map of the present day drain network, the underground stormwater drains. Um, and they completely match up. Um, so say Elizabeth Street, which is a river that feeds into the Yarra River, you know, originally was a river as you and I usually know that what you what you picture when you picture a river um it still is a river but it's now represented in that present day map um as an underground drain um and there's quite a few things yeah like that that really jump out at you quite quickly as soon as you look at this data anyway so i was like great let's make work about this um so when I started the project, um, it was important to um, set out what my focus would be. Um, and that was to talk about um, the industrialization of the Yarra River, um, which in the Wairarung language is known as the Birrung River. Um, and I thought it was my responsibility as a settler to look closer at what settlement has done to the river and how the colony has tried to claim and exploit this river that is always going to be a river no matter what you do to it um which is what these maps demonstrate the contemporary drain map shows that it's you know there's still all of these rivers and wetlands and creeks and swamps still there um some of them are just encased in brick now um anyway yeah so i set about kind of moving the data into a piece of music um, by dividing it geographically into different sections, um, which then went into different movements in the piece. Um, yeah, and then kind of working out different roles for the different instruments that would be playing it. Um, the kind of centerpiece of all of this is the so-called Federation Bells, um, which is this really interesting Karelian of bells. I think it's about 40 bells and they're um, in Birurungma Park, um, which is just north of the Birurung River. Um, and that exact spot where the bells are used to be underwater prior to um, the, yeah, the colonial um, drastic reshaping of the river. So I thought that was quite poignant that even where the Karelian is itself used to be underwater. Um, and so I got the bells to play particular parts of the music. And then I also accompanied that um, with cello, which is my primary instrument. Um, and then also electronics um, and kind of set about assigning them all different roles to play in this storytelling, you could call it. Um, yeah, and the city of Melbourne to their credit were very amenable to all of this. I mean, I think that kind of that says more about the particular people at the city of Melbourne that I was working with, um, you know, because there are people in the council who, you know, have been campaigning for the terrible name of the bells to be changed um, and have like, I think a fairly radical agenda with it. Um, so yeah, ev everyone was extremely on board with the telling of this story, um, which was really nice. It was good to have that support. Um, and yeah rightly so in support of that story to be told yeah and i think um what you were speaking to got me thinking about the real sort of 
fugitivity and ungovernability of water. Um, and the fact that, as you, as you mentioned, um, Elizabeth Street, you know, that river hasn't really been contained. It's just been moved underground. Um, yeah, I really, I'm really interested in the, in the name Undertow as well. And I'm wondering where that came from and why did you pick it? Hmm. I mean, I liked the idea of, yeah, there being uh, mm, a restless giant underneath the surface um, that, you know, because Elizabeth Street floods quite often. Um, it's kind of easy to take for granted that Elizabeth Street is still a river unless you're, I mean, I notice it because I'm a cyclist and when I have to ride east to, to west, across the city like Elizabeth Street is the point where you hit the bottom of the valley and then you have to go back up um yeah like all of the contours of Wurundjeri country are still completely there um of course and yeah so Elizabeth Street floods quite a lot um because you know despite Melbourne Water's best attempts to manage it um it, it will still always be a river um to be totally honest, though, uh, I grew up listening to Tool, which is this <laughs> metal band. <laughs> I was wondering. <laughs> I had I didn't an album say, called but... Undertow, and I was like fishing around for for an appropriate name, um, and I just kind of landed on that. <laughs> Incredible! I think it's uh, it's a beautifully poignant name that also coincidentally <laughs> happens to be a Tool album. <laughs> Um, all right. So, <laughs> well, I mean, I, I also thought about Undercurrent, but I was like, oh, like yeah, everyone I'm friends with in Melbourne is, you know, in this organization called Undercurrent. That would be too obvious. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like it's, it's already, that's already a thing in Melbourne, but you mm. can, you can reclaim a bit of tool. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm really curious about this process of data sonification that you used for the project. Um, and to be honest, I don't actually know that much about it so I'd be keen to hear a bit more about it and maybe if you could explain it in terms that that listeners and myself can understand yeah totally um yeah as I said it's a bit of a, a trend right now in in music but it, it actually came from this very pragmatic place of um accessibility actually of presenting information that would normally be consumed visually like a map or a graph um as something that you could hear so say people with vision impairment would still be able to read a map or yeah look at a graph or something like that um so you just instantly start thinking about okay well how would i communicate this information as something that you could hear so you know and it, it's not actually it's not like a newfangled idea um i think yeah probably the very best example that we have of it um, is the method of navigation combined with storytelling um, that's been on this continent for tens of thousands of years, the use of song lines. Um, yeah, and my method is nowhere near as good as that. Um, but if you're thinking about, okay, so say that there's a line on a map and it's going from north to south, how would I explain that? Well, maybe I would use a descending melody like ba 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 ba, um, and then you could just tell people like, okay, so when you hear a melody going down, that means we're traveling south, and when you hear a melody going up, ba 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 ba, we're going north. Um, 
and then you just kind of yeah go from there there's no standardization of sonification so say that you know like western map making is fairly standardized by now there's particular symbols in the map legend that mean certain things um sonification is not really at that point which kind of makes it quite exciting actually because you could consider it the oral equivalent of experimental map making um so at its pragmatic end that's where it stemmed from um but yeah, a lot of musicians have Western musicians, that is because it's a relatively recent development for some of us. Um, yeah, have started using data to inform our composition, basically. If you're just tuning in, that was part one of my interview with Bridget Chappelle, who's joined me to speak about their upcoming LP release, Undertow, which is their debut full-length album. Hi, we're the Marindas, and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM. We now go to part two of my interview with Bridget Chappelle, who joined us on the Thursday Breakfast Show to speak about the upcoming LP release of Undertow, their debut full-length album. Yeah, so it's become an increasing trend for musicians in the West, at least. It's a new thing for us um, to yeah, start using data to inform our work. Um, yeah, so I was really stoked when I was asked to make this piece of music um, and I was quite excited to have to develop my own version of sonification, um, yeah, because it's just a kind of developing trend, a developing technology, a developing form of creativity, um, yeah, in these particular genres anyway. Um, yeah, so... First of all, I set out wanting to um, represent the geospatial data. So um, things, objects that you see on a map, basically. So things that were um, kind of just like a line on a map were the easiest um, for reasons that I've just badly sung to you. Because um, that, that kind of thing, yeah, you could just really just assign, um, yeah, notes or a melody to it to represent it. Um, and that felt fairly intuitive. Um, when I was trying to represent 2D objects, like a wetland or a marsh, um, that became a little bit more tricky um, because I was going, oh, am I just going to kind of <laughs> sing my way around the perimeter of this object or am I going to try and jump between the northernmost and southernmost point of this object? Um, and I ended up settling on this function in electronic music that's called an arpeggiator, um, where basically you could play two different notes on, say, a keyboard. Um, say that you play a low note and a high note. And then if you set the arpeggiator function on it, which, you know, you find this function on a lot of synthesizers and in software like Ableton, which is what I was using, um, it will play lots of notes in between those two notes um, in a harmonic way. That is a way that sounds nice to our ears. It sounds like it makes sense. Um, so instead of a, a low note and a high note, just like ba ba, you would have ba 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 ba. I'm not a vocalist, okay? Just so everybody knows. So that was kind of my way of filling in marshlands and wetlands. Um, yeah, which was kind of a nice way of going about it. 
from there, I um, wanted to express different ways that the water had been moved around, whether it was driven underground or encased in different pipes or bridges and different networks. Um, so I started adding things like reverb, that is kind of the sounds of echo and spatialization. So you know how you clap inside your bedroom would sound different from how you clap in a big hall, like an auditorium or something. So I started adding those sounds um, to some of the instruments when the water was passing through particular chambers in its flow. Um, I then started using different kind of storytelling techniques, particularly with the role of the cello. Um, the One of the many things that the cello had to, one of the roles that it had to play um, was talking about the dredging of the river because many parts of the Birurung River were widened um, by colonial processes so that larger boats could go further upstream. Um, it used to be that um, from the original port, which was quite close to the city, um, the furthest that uh, like a larger kind of steamer barge could go up was to where Queensbridge is just now. And they just kept widening the river and deepening the river so bigger and bigger, you know, cargo boats could go up. Um, and then it actually, yeah, um, where Queensbridge is now became a real kind of flashpoint for really, really violent changes on the river because there actually used to be a waterfall there, quite a small um, waterfall or like a set of cascades, um, which represented the point between the salty water downstream and the fresh water upstream. So it serves a very, very important ecological role in the, in the life of the river. It was also one of the major points where the river would flood after big rains, which again, it serves super important purposes. Um, all of the kind of marshy swampland uh, south of the river, which is where South Melbourne is at the moment, um, yeah, was host to a huge, huge, huge um, community of water birds and fish and yeah, obviously very good hunting there and things like that. Um, but yeah, white people really hated that the river flooded there. Um, so in the late 1800s, they blew up the waterfall, which is just so hectic. Hey, um, when I learned about that, and I was really surprised when I learned about that, that it's shocking how shocking it is. It's shocking that you don't know that already. Like there's not even a plaque on Queen. Like I've walked over Queensbridge all the time because I'm often working at Signal, this really nice like youth arts center just north of there. And like, I've never seen a single mention of that. You'd think that like, I don't know. Yeah. Anyway. So, but you, you really just dredge this out from, well, you dredge, <laughs> dredging in multiple senses, you dredge it out from, uh, yeah, like not even official histories of Melbourne, but there's plenty of history on it to be found if you go into yeah books and accounts on the internet and you know, talk to people and stuff um yeah so one of the movements is actually about that um and probably that part is the part that I'm trying the least to kind of be smart about how I'm sonifying things um you know everyone knows what dynamite sounds like so that was that wasn't dressed up um 
Yeah. And then the other two movements, um, just to kind of, yeah, give you a, a bit more of an idea of the sonification process. The first movement is about Birung Ma, um, the wetland that used to be there, which is where I was initially struggling with how to represent a 2D object. Um, the second movement is about Crude Island, which is this um, island that has been created out of the sea in Port Phillip Bay now to um, house containers. So it's part of the really, really big shipping port um, between the city and Footscray, um, which is a pretty interesting area. Um, one of the books that I drew on really heavily um, was called Blue Lake. Oh, it's right here. Let me just see who it's by. <laughs> it's by David Sornig. Um, yeah, it's an incredible book that talks about this area between the city and Footscray and how, um, it, yeah, it used to be this huge, interesting, beautiful system of marshlands, um, including this stunning Blue Lake, um, which I'm assuming would have been semi-saline. Um, and now it's it's totally given over to yeah the industry of Melvin. Um, a note on salinity actually since the um, since the destruction of freshwater falls the the Whitefella name for those waterfalls where Queensbridge is now um, it means that many 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 more kilometres of the river have become estuarine so. There's salt in the water, actually the entire way up to Dites Falls in Abbotsford. So I think it's about like 15 more kilometers of the river that's tidal and salty um, that, you know, prior to that was freshwater. So it's just radically changed the ecology of the river as well. Um, yeah. So, and then, yeah, the, the third um, movement is about the waterfall and the fourth movement is about Elizabeth Street um, and yeah I mean in terms of sonification in Elizabeth Street there's just these there's this repeating um, motif of um, the sound of rising water which is this repetitive rising melody um, just getting more and more and more tense basically yeah it was a bit of a funny um, Oh, this is a hyper nerdy classical music joke. So I don't think it's actually a joke, <laughs> maybe just to me. Um, but the the role, the original role of the cello in in Baroque music, um, which you know is maybe about from you know the early 1600s to the late 1700s, when a lot of that kind of like um, European music now, which we just thoroughly associate with um, rich people and, you know, like bad times, which is totally fair enough. Um, but in the Baroque era, it was kind of a lot more like um, rock is folk music. Um, anyway, but the role of the cello in that era was to just play this repetitive melody over and over and over again, like a bass line, basically, like what the bass guitar does in a lot of rock music. Um, and I always hated that. That's why I hated playing in orchestra as a kid. So I assigned that role to the bells in this piece. Cause I was like, no, nah, I'm, I'm going to be playing the melody. <laughs> Incredible. Yes. Um, so that, that's like the, that's the potted version of sonification. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm really keen for, because we're going to be playing Elizabeth street, um, back to back with with this interview so I'm really keen for 
um, listeners to get the chance to hear a bit of this explanation and then kind of get a sense of how that plays out in the track. Um, but because we're going to have to wrap up soon, um, maybe I'll ask you quickly, do you have any projects that you're working on at the moment or um, where you're planning on going from here? Um, from here, I, I'm actually hoping to do some work on the Murray River, which is the river that I'm lucky to live next to now. Um, yeah. Um, I really just want to learn as much as I can about it and find ways to support um, Indigenous water sovereignty here. Whether or not that coincides with my art um, is, yeah, I don't know, not, not important. But yeah, I, I definitely, I, I think that, yeah, water sovereignty is, um, yeah, it's, it's obviously alongside um, land sovereignty and land rights. Um, it's really hard to kind of pin down water sovereignty sometimes because water seems so ethereal. Um, so yeah, it, it's good to focus, get, focus on it, give it just as much attention. Yeah. And I think, um, the sort of the terrestrial nature of sovereignty and political contestation that we kind of think about, um, makes water this really elusive category. Mm. Um, it, and I mean, even the way that we talk about it, it's hard to pin down. It's hard to hold in our hands. Um, exactly. But what's really troubling about it is that it makes it, it kind of streamlines the process of settlers stealing it. it it's almost like sometimes water is, yeah, like several steps ahead of land in terms of the colonial project, which is, yeah, terrifying. Yeah. And I, I think like, um, as you, as you said, like part of, that unfixed quality has made it, you know, divertible and movable in, in ways that have been, you know, part, partly captured through this project. Um, when we think about freshwater falls, um, but also, you know, eludes capture in the historical narrative as well. And I think uh, undertow brings that back really nicely. Um, so thank you so much for, joining me to speak about this project. I'm really excited to listen along um, after the interview to Elizabeth Street. Um, Thank but you yeah. so much, Freya. <laughs> and thanks, 3CR. That was part two of my interview with Bridget Chappelle, who joined me to speak about the upcoming LP release of Undertow, which is their debut full-length album. We're now going to play track four, Elizabeth Street from Undertow, which is due for limited release on vinyl on the 30th of September, out with Heavy Machinery Records.
You're listening to Thursday Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. The track you just heard was Elizabeth Street, track four on Bridget Chappelle's upcoming LP release, Undertow. What a huge show as usual. Um, hopefully Elizabeth Street woke everybody up a little bit. So just to, to recap, um, we heard an interview with Carly, Annalise Affet, and Iris Lee, who spoke about the abolition of the prison industrial complex in Australia. 
And then we heard a conversation that I had with Bridget Chappelle about that EP, Undertow, uh, which is their debut full-length album. And uh, yeah, I think that's about it. Yeah, that's all we've got time for. Thanks so much, Carly. Thanks, Priya. See you all next week.